Hey, so uh, we're in a series called First. We've been looking at keeping in this new year the preeminent priority preeminent. Uh, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And if your life is falling apart, it perhaps is pointing to a drift from him being the main thing. And so it's really easy in a new year to have clear goals and clear uh, things that you're going after. And then, like most of us do, we, we, we tend to drift. We tend to walk away. We, we tend to wander from what was simple and clear. And we make it complex. And we weigh it down with shame. And we weigh it down with failure. And we weigh it down with our sense of success and us achieving. And that begins to get in the way of what was once clear being clear. And so we, we talked about a proven practice, the practice being a consistent habit of getting along with God. While Jesus was on earth, even though he was in high demand, even though people were asking for his time, he consistently withdrew to get along with the Father. And if you and I want to walk in step with the work of God and the will of God, then we're going to have to get along in the presence of God so that we can be redirected and reminded at the beginning and at the end of each day that we are a dependent people. We may live in an independent country, but we've been created to be a dependent people, dependent upon our king, his name is Jesus, in every step and in every season of life. We're not to live our lives based on what we believe we can do with ourselves, but it's Christ in you that sets the standard and the target for what we are trying to strive after doing and being about. And so, so we are... Uh, trying to make a habit in the new year of getting along with God. Now, I see your faces. You've heard me say it for about four weeks. It's an assumed practice. It's something you know you ought to do. But the problem is, for the majority of us, we have people that we look up to that do the things that we know we ought to do, but we only do them occasionally instead of doing them consistently. And many of the people that have grown and rooted in their faith, the only difference between us and them is that they do consistently the things that you're doing occasionally. So what would happen in a new year if you made it the preeminent priority, the preeminent habit of your life to get alone with God? Well, I believe that you would be rooted and built up, that you would be strengthened in God, that you would be transformed into His image in a way that you've never dreamed to be possible. Well, I'm preaching good and y'all are looking at me like I'm crazy, but you're crazy to hear this for four weeks and still look at me like you don't understand something so simple yet life transformational as that practice. The second week we talked about looking at the priorities of your life. For a lot of you, you've misprioritized relationships and stuff into the wrong category. And as a result of it, you are using God to get the stuff that you want as if he is a uh, genie or a side piece that's supposed to help you get the desires of your heart, which means when he doesn't give you what you want, when you want it, you drift from him and go to other churches until you hear someone tickle your ears with what you want God to say instead of the word of God, which actually might direct you, correct you, rebuke you, and change you into what he's called you to be. For a lot of us, we've gotten out of the practice of Jesus being the center, Jesus being the foundation, Jesus being our anchor, Jesus being the core, because it's from him and through him that we then live in relationship and live in community. I mean, if you want a boyfriend in the new year, what you really need is a new relationship with Jesus in the new year. And if you would get with Christ and you would allow him to found you in your identity, you would stop dating <laughs> versions of Boaz that are anything but it. For all you Bible nerds, you know what I'm talking about. For the rest of you, you can YouTube it later. <laughs> Stuff can't be more important than people. People can't be more important than God. But when God is the most important thing in your life, you will find him giving you a love that benefits your neighbor and the ability to take your stuff to worship him and to bless those around you, which is what it was created for in the first 
place. Last week we looked at the spiritual discipline of fasting. About 140 people in our church have been in an active fast. We're hungry this morning. Not physically, but spiritually. We want to see Jesus move. We don't want to talk about a move of God. No, 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 no. We want to experience a move of God in 2024. And so we're willing to eliminate distractions that easily caught our eyes and caught our affections and wooed our love and affection away from God. And we want that to be put back in its right place. We want to love Jesus well, our whole heart, whole mind, and strength kind of love in this year. We talked about fasting being a way for us to eliminate things that get in the way of us seeing the main thing in our life. My prayer is that it's been a blessed time for you to hear from God individually and corporately. But I want to end our first series by talking about the work that we have seen God doing behind the scenes in our church that's preparing us for this next season with where we're going to go. And so if you're new here, you're going to get to know the kind of the bones of our church today, what we're about, what we believe God has called us to do. And uh, hopefully it'll help you discern not if you like us or not, but, or, but instead it'll help you discern, am I called to this crazy group of people that make me a little nervous, but I kind of like it or not? And, and that's really the aim, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. You don't pick a church, you're called to one. You don't look for a church that can serve you, you look for a church where you can both serve and be served. And if it's about you being served, then you've come to hide, and this will not be a good place for you to hide. We don't play hide and go seek in God's house. God recognizes the people in the crowd and he knows them by name and he calls them from the crowd and makes them family. And If we're going to do our job, you may come here to heal, but you will not heal in silence and in solitude and in isolation on the back row of a church that you can hide in the crowd. No, instead, you'll heal with the people of God because perhaps the thing that scares you most and the place that you were hurt most within a community will be the place where God does the most work in healing in your life this year. We exist as a church. Our mission is to reach the least and the lost and the lonely with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are lots of incredible churches in our community, and I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. I respect so many pastors that are around us. I love the local church too much to criticize or to say something that then leads to a backhanded uh, diss on another church that's faithfully preaching the word of God and attempting by the spirit of God to live out what the word has called the church to be. There's some incredible churches. You drove by a lot of them to come here. The question that we often want you to ask is why? That's not really conducive to church growth, but it is conducive to kingdom growth. And I'm more concerned with kingdom growth than church growth. And I want you to know that I would rather you be a part of a kingdom growing community where God has called and has put you on the front line to be used and challenged and spurred and seen and known than for you to come and help us fill a seat so that the church can grow and I can feel better at night whenever I'm getting my identity from something other than Christ. So we exist to reach the least lost along with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? We believe that God has uniquely called four points to be a, uh, I think it's called a level one trauma center. I'm looking at my nurse friend. What is the highest level of trauma center? Level one. We believe that that's what God's called us to be. Uh, we're, we're not a church for the well put together. We're not a church for a group of people that can keep it together or uh, have had a decent life. I'll be honest with you. Most of us in here come from broken backgrounds and broken places. It's been tough. It's been difficult. Most of the people in this room at some point in time have gone without, have dealt with difficulty, have a record to speak to it. We exist because the more you walk towards the light, the more mess is going to be seen. And I believe 
that uh, church is meant, that our church is meant specifically in our community to be the kind of place for the people that got turned away from every other church in the community. Because you are a hot mess and you probably were gossiping and you probably were in some of the wrong and they told you no, but we are the long-suffering church that gets down in the pit with people and stands there with them as God is working to bring them out. That makes a lot of people uncomfortable and that's okay because there's plenty of churches that aren't level one trauma centers. They're not equipped to be a level one trauma center kind of church. Uh, they're not equipped to walk in uh, the fact that sometimes people go back and they relapse and they do things that you can't imagine that they would do and they need a place with a group of people that just won't quit on them. I never will forget when God really rooted this call in my life to, to, to be that kind of church. I was at a guy's court date. It was his third court date and he looked back and he saw me. He had gotten drunk and cut a house down that a guy didn't pay him to build with a chainsaw. Um, and it was like his sixth or seventh offense. You didn't want to mess with this guy. And uh, he looked at me and uh, in the courtroom he said, why are you here? And I said, because we love you. And he said, could you just stop? And I said, no. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. We serve a good shepherd that runs us down. That never leaves and there are some people that stick closer than a friend, or stick closer than a brother. They're a friend. Your family has to put up with you. Your friends choose to put up with you. And we believe that in this church, if you stay here, you're going to find some friends. That should you find yourself on the darkest day of your life, you're going to look up and they're going to be standing there and go, why are you here? And they're going to say, because I love you. And you're going to look at them and go, why don't? And they're going to say, I can't help it. I can't help it. The work of God, the love of God compels me to love you. So our mission is, and the unchanging purpose for which we exist, is, is to be the kind of church that reaches the least, the lost, and the with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But vision means something different for us. You tracking with me? Mission, unchanging purpose for which we exist. When Jesus comes back, if Four Points Church exists, we're going to be the kind of church that's still reaching the least, the lost, and the with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But hopefully we've changed. Hopefully we've matured. Hopefully we continue to look like the ethnic and economic breakdown of the community that we are engaged in. If this community becomes predominantly Hispanic, hopefully we don't stay looking like a non-Hispanic church. We are called to reach a community, and if we're engaging that community, there should be a microcosm of what you see out there and a redeemed sense in here. So we're going to change. And the vision is about identifying the opportunities that God is giving us as the community is changing for us to stay in the long-observed path of that mission with a targeted vision for that season. So mission, uh, vision is mile markers on the long path of fulfilling our mission. It's a mile marker. And we've been in a current vision season of creating space for people to connect with Jesus and each other. And I'll tell you why that was so important. Why do we need to create a space for people to connect with Jesus and Joe? That seems very foundational and fundamental. Uh, I've been the pastor now a little over two years at this church. And when I came in, I wrote down some of the consultants' advice for what they were saying to the search team and the leadership of the church. And I want to share with you where we were a little over two years ago. One consultant said, you guys will never make it out of what you've been through. There'll not be another season of ministry because you won't get past what's happened. Another consultant said, the best shot you guys likely have is becoming a campus of a larger church, but being a smaller church that uh, makes it through something like this will never happen. You won't recover in the community. Well, I have bad news for that consultant. My God 
in the valley of perhaps the most difficult season of this church's history, decided that there was another chapter. Decided that he was not done with this little church on 101. And as a result of it, he has brought us from the brink of a funeral and extinction to a vibrant community that is now desperately looking for the next opportunity to make the name of Jesus known around us. We've not died. We've grown. But when I came in, we were scattered. I never will forget the mandate when I came in the door. I take this very seriously, preaching and teaching the Word of God. I can't wait to get to the actual text I'm going to teach in just a second. But I remember uh, I came in the door, and it's like, what do you do as you're starting out? And I felt a mandate from God. I mean that, a mandate from God to teach the 23rd Psalm. We spent six weeks on six verses of the 23rd Psalm because I felt like God was making it very clear to me in my individual life and in my family's life as we were in transition and to this church who had been through a difficult season with big dreams that had crashed hard that, that we need to be reminded that the Lord is my shepherd. Because he's our shepherd, we shall not. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Let me start over and get it right. You ready? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup, even though I'm surrounded even though I'm challenged, even though I'm ridiculed, even though I've been through it, my cup overflows. David, in the reflection of all of God's sufficiency and shepherding over his whole life, writes this psalm at the end of his life. And in that reflection, after going through all of what God has done in his life, he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And man, God has done exactly that. If you look at statistically the numbers of where we've been and what God's done in this season, you'll see that our growth has been great numerically. We've had 380 people was the average attendance at church in 2020. That grew into the 440s in 21, 460 in 22. And last year, it's one of the highest average attendance over the year we've ever had, 549 people weekly coming and being a part of the church. Most importantly, we know uh, that there's a need for community. We are communal people. Uh, if you do not have healthy community in your life, you will overlook sin that you should repent of. You will pursue Jesus at a suboptimal pace that's slower than you actually could go after him. Uh, you'll begin to uh, live a lukewarm life, but you will not be a white-hot, on-fire life for the Lord without community. Community spurs us, challenges us, loves us, encourages us, prays for us. Community keeps us when we wander and chases us when we do. If you're going to be healthy, if you're going to grow in your faith, it won't be because you found a good crowd of people that get together on Sundays and the preacher gets barefoot and yells and shouts enough to get you motivated to think you're going to do something different. It won't be because the choir grew and the music got better and Thedius got everyone a little bit more free. <laughs> It'll likely be because you'll look up at the end of the year and realize that God has providentially placed some people in your life. That right now are strangers, but in the coming months became family. And they began to spur you and challenge you and love you and go after Jesus with you 
So that at the end of this year, you look up and you, you could think, oh, it was the preacher's preaching. It was the uh, music and, and all of the strappings and all the pretty stuff. It was that. But if you do this the way I believe God would call you to do it, you'll look up and you'll go, no, no, no. God put that couple, that family in our life. And I didn't know it when we first met them. And it was awkward and it was weird. But I see Jesus at work in them and through them, and they are spurring me, and they are challenging me, and they are, and, and we see this very community model that I'm talking about in the life of Jesus. See, Jesus didn't hang out with everybody equally, and neither should you. If you're going to grow, you're going to need a crowd, a crowd that reminds you that it's bigger than you, a crowd that reminds you that God is able, a crowd where you hear the word proclaimed and worship given and it inspires you. You see, we need crowds in our life. No one likes to go to a, a, a big concert with a big star and you're the only person there. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's awkward. It's not the same experience as when Garth's got a guitar on and there's 50,000 people in a stadium and they know every single word and everybody's singing together. That's a crowd. You get inspired. You go there going, I'm going to dance. The dance, Garth Brooks. And I, I'm glad I didn't know the way it all would end, the way it all would go. Our lives are better left to chance. I could have missed the pain, but I'd have had to miss the... Now, if that's just me in the room, it's even more awkward. But you get a crowd of people. You get a crowd of people. Even singing about ungodly things, it gets you motivated. Either to do godly things or ungodly things. This crowd hopefully motivates you to godly things. See, the crowd's impersonal. Not everybody needs to know your business. Not everybody needs to know the story behind your tears. Sometimes you need to be in a crowd where the tears can flow and God can move and He can work and your heart can be lifted and hope can be given. But Jesus didn't just stay in the crowds. He withdrew with a group. Twelve mishaps, mess-ups, screw-ups called the disciples. In the crowd, Jesus would teach things. In a group, he would explain things. In a crowd, people would hear and wonder what he was saying. But in a group, they would ask him questions so that they would know what he was saying. You see, many, many of you got a crowd that inspires you, but you don't have a group that can help you put the rubber to the road in your faith. So all you have is inspiration with no actual change. In your life, if you're going to grow, you're going to need not only a crowd to be inspired, but a group to be challenged. And there's something amazing, because no one can give this to you. But Jesus modeled this for us. Even within the group that Jesus had, there was a smaller group called his few. In this life, and on this side of eternity, if you're going to grow, you're going to need a crowd to be inspired and a group to be known, but you're going to need a few because they're going to be an anchor. Your few are the people that when you push everybody else away, you pull them in. Your group calls and asks, how are you? Can I do anything for you? They mean it. They want to help you. Your few... Don't call, they show up. Sometimes they don't even knock. They just come in. 
They don't ask if something's in the fridge. They help themselves <laughs> to the fridge. See, see, when you get into a group and life happens, you go through pain, you go through suffering, you go through difficulty. Everyone in the group wants to change it, but they can't. Everyone in the crowd wishes it would go away, but all they've got is wishes. But your few show up and they sit. They don't give you just prayer. They give you their presence. So this is something we've lost. But in, in, you go to Lazarus when Lazarus died. There's people that have showed up, Mary and Martha's few, and they just are sitting. They're not trying to fix it. They're just not going to let you go through it alone. That's the few. When Jesus goes to the mountain to be transfigured, guess who he went up to the mountain with? His few, right? Peter in. Everyone's nervous. John. <laughs> they go up and they see Jesus talking to Moses, which is a pretty incredible moment. And Peter's like, I have an idea. What if we never go back to the group? What if we never go back to the crowd? What if we just build a house and stay here? Which is what some of you mistakenly do when you don't understand the benefit of all three levels of community. We don't need a big church. We don't need a group. I don't need church at all. I'm just going to stay here with my few. Hmm. Then later in Jesus' life, he's going to the cross. And on his way to the cross, Jesus goes to a garden to pray. He takes the group into the garden. But once he gets in the garden, guess who he goes further into the garden with? The few. And if you're paying attention to the story in the book of Matthew, what you'll discover is it wasn't until he was with his few that he allowed the agony on his face to be seen. Think about the, hum the humility of being Peter in this moment. Jesus has been acting different, but he's keeping it together to not scare the disciples completely. But once they get to that certain part of the garden, Jesus, being fully God and fully man, allows Peter and John to see the agony on his face that he was hiding from the group. Who really sees the pain? Who in your life, when they get around you, challenge you and evoke from you the ability not to save your face, but to save your behind? Who are you that kind of vulnerable with? Now, here's what I want you to know. No church can give you your few. But in a healthy church, they can help you find a group. And within that group, in time, by God's providence, work, and goodness, you'll discover a few. That speak to what the Proverbs speak of relationships when it says that there's a friend that sits closer than a brother. Meaning, your family has to put up with you. They don't get a choice. But what's beautiful about your few is they choose you and they don't have to. They didn't have to get in the pit with you, but they chose to. They didn't have to divide the burden with you, but they chose to. They didn't have to deal with you when you were ratchety and horrible and mean and gossiping and, and just Daria every single day. How's it going? It's raining. What, what, what are you hoping? More rain. When are you happy? When it rains. What's your outlook on life? Nothing. What do you hope happens? Leave me alone. Like, like, and they'd stay. 
They get a vacuum out and they vacuum your house and they tell you to wash your face. If you don't, they do it for you. And they're not your mama. That's your few. Do you have a crowd where you're inspired? Do you have a group where you're known? Do you have a few that stick closer than a blood relative? That when you push everybody else away, you pull them in. That has been the emphasis of this season of ministry at our church. Building a group ministry where people in a crowd could find a group. As a result, we have some statistics on what God has done. Here's what's bad. 33% of you have community in a group in our church. We're told that that's great and I should be happy about it. I'm not. Church analytics and statistics are not what guide me to what's healthy or unhealthy. And while 330 may get you into the Hall of Fame if that's what you bat in baseball, that means 77% were not pitches. Those were people whose lives were lived in isolation where they could be inspired by a crowd but had no group to hold them accountable and to help them move forward and to love them and for them to, be, to love others around them and practice the one another's of the Bible. So look, look, can I just be honest? Why aren't you in a group? Like, why do I have to get up here and beg and plead with you? We're busy. We don't have time. I, I Look, everybody's busy. Everybody's busy. You still make time for what matters to you. And I'm sorry, I'm not going to remove it from the equation. If it matters, it gets time. And when it doesn't, it gets moved down the list. And for a lot of you, you don't think you need a group. So let's just be honest. You're as what the scriptures say. A spiritually shallow Christian currently. And you get mad when you hear me say that. You know why you get mad? You know why you get mad? Because you're not used to accountability. Someone looking at you and going, hey, I know you may not want to hear this, but I think you're misprioritizing time and resources in your life, and I don't think that's going to lead you to a place of you becoming more like Christ like you want to. See, a lot of you, you're hiding in a crowd, and you're avoiding community because it's within a community that your faith but start to bear fruit at a level that it can't bear with you just being inspired and hoping that you're going to change. You need people. You need people. And so I'm admonishing you to not waste another year in the absence of community. I know that it may look different. We got all kinds of groups. We got groups that meet like every other week. We got groups that meet once a month. We got groups that meet every week. We got some people that have a group they meet with for Bible study and then another group they meet with for game night. Like, like we've got people that do groups upon groups upon groups. Because when you really begin to experience group life centered around the gospel and the kingdom of God and the community of God, you actually start to desire it and want more. It's really crazy to where you stop like, you know, wanting to hang out with Hank and all of his crazy rowdy friends and But who you hang out with matters. I mean, if you were to walk out of the door and walk in as an advisor to your children on community, you would tell them that who they hang out with matters. You would tell them that the people that they break bread with matter. Many of you are up at night worried because your kids are breaking bread with the wrong crowd. Yet you look at your own life and you're like, I don't need the right crowd at my table. I don't need the right people around me. And you think that you're going to be fine, that you're going to grow, that you're going to develop, that you're going to mature. And all that's happening is you're continuing down a path of being inspired to know that there's an identity and a purpose that God has for you, but not come alongside the people that were meant by God through the work of God to spur you on to becoming that. 
was supposed to have wrapped this up a long time ago. Here's my point. We're moving into a new vision season where it's my aim to create a church where it's impossible to stay unknown. That's what we're about to do. For the next two to three years, we're going to do everything that we can to create the kind of church where you cannot hide. And I'm going to get called names for it. I'm not going to force you to do something you don't want to do. But if you come here, you can heal here, but you can't hide in complacency here. Perhaps the greatest pastime of the Deep South is whenever you get hurt or angry by someone at the church, and sometimes it's serious hurt, and sometimes, let's just be honest, you didn't get to do what you wanted to do, so like Eric Cartman, you got your ball and you went home. And you think that you can come over here, sit and pout with your ball, and if we don't let you use your ball the way that you want us to let you use your ball, you'll go somewhere else that'll let you use your ball the way that you want to use your ball until you find someone that will just leave you alone let you use your ball the way that you want to use your ball so that we can celebrate you and not really worship God because it's not about God getting worshipped. It's really about you being worshipped and finding a sense of significance in your gift instead of the God that gave you the gift. But nonetheless, So look, you, you can come here and heal, and if you need some time to sit and hide, I get it. But if you're hiding for months on end, uh, in the creepiest way I can say it, we will find you. <laughs> One of my favorite stories about this is a guy named Zacchaeus. It comes in Luke chapter 19. In Luke 19, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This is the last stop before he'll get there. He stops off in a city called Jericho. Jericho, according to the historian Josephus, was fat. Not fat in people, but fat in gluttony, fat in greed, fat in resources. It was Vegas, a city built in the middle of nowhere because of a port that allowed for a lot of taxes. So it became a hub of the Roman government. Now, many of you sang the song so you know the story. Zacchaeus was a, in a wee little, climbed up in a, for the Savior that he and as the Savior passed on by, he looked up in the tree and said, get your tail out of that tree. Come into your house. Ten verses. Luke 19, 1 to 10. And the chief tax collector's life changed. He came to hide in a crowd just to see. He left with a house filled with what he came to see. He was rejected, not allowed to be in the temple. In fact, if you look at history, they'll tell you that murderers and tax collectors were basically the same thing in society. They were traitors. They had turned their back on their people, their God. They worked for the enemy. They took from the table of the people that lived in the land so that they could give to the people that had occupied the land. I, because it's tax season, don't need to ask you how many of you like taxes or tax collectors. <laughs> We're told he's a wee little man. In archaeological digs, they found that the average doorway height in Jericho was five feet during this time. That means the average height for a person living in Jericho was under five feet during this time. That means if you in your crowd of people were considered small, you would be significantly shorter than the people that fit through the five-foot doorway. We're told that he was the chief tax collector. That means he ran a mob of tax collectors. 
He wasn't like Matthew who had a tax booth where he collected taxes in one spot. He ran the whole region. Kingpin Zacchaeus. Mobster, people betraying, turn your back on God, Zacchaeus. Wanted to get in the parade route of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem just to see him. That's all it says. He doesn't want to meet him. He just wants to... How many of you, because of your background, don't want to be seen by God, but you need to see God today? How many of you come to church, and for various reasons you've told yourself you're not worthy for the kind of communion with the people of God and the God of the people that that preacher's up there talking about? And so in your mind, you'll just slide in and hide in the crowd. Well, bad news is second service is the least crowded service we have right now at our church. So the crowd's at first if you're trying to hide next week. <laughs> and, and two, number two, we serve a Savior who knows the names that are in the crowd. So when Zacchaeus climbed up in the tree, which would have been about up to 40 feet in height and had a wide wing span and camouflaged him well, he likely was as shocked as many of you were at different points in this service whenever the Holy Spirit took something that was an impersonal experience within a crowd and made it personal mm -hmm. to you. Perhaps you think, I'm not the person that can be reached by God. I'm not the person that can be changed by God. If you go back one chapter, this is me having fun at this point. <laughs> if you go back one chapter, a rich young ruler comes up to Jesus, and he says, what must I do to be saved? Now, he leaves Jesus sad because Jesus' prescription to him is go and sell. One thing you like, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and... Okay, so just making sure we get the tension here. You ready? You can have your stuff, or you can have me. And I can have you, or your stuff can have you. It sounds familiar. Like in Matthew chapter, I don't know, 6, Jesus said something about you cannot serve if you love one and you cannot serve both God and. So this interaction happens. He leaves discouraged, the, the rich young ruler. The disciples are astonished because two reasons, two reasons. Number one, he's got everything the world would say you need. He's young and rich. Many of you, you're going to be rich, but by the time you get rich, you're going to be too old to have a lot of fun with it. So you're going to have money, but you're going to be too decrepit to enjoy it. And you gave all of your youthful passion to get it, and now you got it, and all you can do is spoil, spoil kids. It's frustrating. But he's rich and young. On top of being rich and young, he's seen by the community as being exemplary when it came to his religion and faith. He's righteous. He's good. So in their minds, if he cannot be saved, who can? Why, why am I, Pete, 
over-promising, under-delivering, cussing out girls over burning barrels, denying Jesus, even though I've been hanging out with them way more than anybody else has been hanging out with them, and it should have made more change in my life than it's made Peter. What's the hope for me? And Jesus says, well, <laughs> anything's possible with God. But it's like, he uses an illustration. It's like a camel going through the, chapter 19 is the camel going through the eye of the needle. A rich tax collector named Zacchaeus, who's unrighteous, has the complete opposite story happen to him. He doesn't believe he's worthy, yet Jesus has already prepared Zacchaeus' table for his presence. And his invitation to Zacchaeus is not, let's have a talk, but he invites him around the same table where his, who's gathered? His group. He pulls Zacchaeus not into the crowd. Oh, you can follow me in the crowd. He pulls him into his. By the end of it, Zacchaeus has given away everything that he held dearly. Because the true treasure that his heart wanted, desired, and needed had been given. Here's my point. Over the next several months, we're about to walk into a season where God is going to do things that are going to leave your jaw on the floor. We're about to see God moving away in this church, reaching and pushing back the darkness in our community in ways that you are not currently prepared for. Our church is going to grow. And when it grows, it's going to give you the opportunity to complain. Growth creates complexity. Complexity kills growth. And here's what I'm inviting you to do. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're checking out our church and you've been kicking the tires, I want to invite you to come on a mission with us as we ensure that everyone who comes through the door a stranger leaves a friend. I want to invite you to represent a kingdom that has a king that knows his people by name that knows the number of hairs on their head, that knit them together in their mother's womb, that gave them an errant value that cannot be taken away by the mistakes of their past and the failures and struggles of their present. I want you to invite the least and the lost and the lonely. And here's what I can promise you. The next 12 months, they're going to get messy. It's about to be a holy mess up in here, and God is going to do some amazing, powerful, kingdom-shaping work in this church for the sake of his name, glory, and renown. And I'm inviting you, followers of God in the room, to get your boots on and to get shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield as we go after Jesus being everything. Hmm. There's some ways that you can take steps today. I know this is the unspiritual part where we ask you to do something. Uh, there's a QR code that's going to come on that screen. And that QR code is going to prompt you down a road of next steps that we've been working on to create. Now, I want you to get the rhythm of what we're trying to do. We are committed with you being in the crowd, moving to the core. That is our aim and our drive behind everything that we do. So if you're starting to get freaked out at how much we want to know you, you need to know that's because we want to know you. I'm not talking about church you. I'm not talking about made-up version of you. I'm not talking about the version of you that lies about how distant in the past your sin is. I used to struggle with that years ago. No, let's not, let's not lie. We're going to normalize repentance this year in this church. I'm going to be the lead repenter. I'm going I'm to take the mantle up of declaring my dependency and repenting of the moments where I wander from God in a way that invite you to know that you don't have to lie. 
You don't have to overpromise. You don't have to exaggerate how spiritual or unspiritual you may or may not be. Like here you can actually be what you are, where you are, because God meets us there. But here's the good news. In community, through his gospel, through his work, and by his spirit, he will not leave us there. So every first week of the month, we have a new guest dinner where I want to invite you to come have dinner with me if you're new here. If you don't have friends, don't have community, I want you to come. What's going to happen? I'm going to tell you my story. I'm going to invite you if you're willing to tell me yours. We had 22 people at our new guest dinner in January. We then, every second week of the month this year, are going to have a We Are Four Points gathering, which is the first step in becoming a member of our church. Is this where God's called you to be? We want to confirm that. We want you to feel affirmed in that. We're going to talk theology and doctrine and background and ecclesiology and all the ologies that you don't know about. Don't worry, we'll explain them. We're going to help you discern, God, is it here or am I called to be here to be encouraged and feel to be sent? Following that up, we're going to have a second week in a row of that where you're going to get to hear from our elders and our teachers. By the time you go through those three classes, you'll have met every person in leadership in our church. It's not me running every class. It's not me running every group. It's you getting to know a community. Because you're not making a commitment to be a part of my preaching ministry. You're making a commitment to be a part of a community that carries the mantle and the banner and the responsibility of carrying the gospel to the least and the lost and the lonely outside of here. So you better get to know more than me. And if I'm the holdup, man, get to know the people in this community because they're way better than me. We are committed to you getting assimilated into our church. So you can scan that QR code. Everyone's going to do it on the count of three, two, three. Everyone's getting their phones out as the Spirit leads in three. Everyone, so that they can take next steps. You can click multiple categories, like I'm new here. I want to be baptized. I want to get on a team. I want to get into a community group. We have 27 community groups that are active. They would love to have you. They even cook for you. Sometimes they even offer free child care for you. You may even be able to date your husband this year if you get into a community group because y'all could do a, a babysit swap. Who knows the potential of what could happen when you take a step of obedience. Now, we've been fasting. We're going to end it with this. I know we got, we're going to take five minutes. Can you push in with me? Can you push in with me? The people that don't want to feel obligated just to stay silent. I understand. I want us to come into a genuine moment of prayer. And I want to invite us to go through three progressions. I want you first, as you've been fasting and asking God to lead you into this new year, and if you've not been fasting, I'm inviting you to ask God as he's leading you into this new year. I want you to invite him to ask, I want you to invite him to remind you in this moment as you pray of his character, of his goodness, of his gospel, and of your identity as a result of it. Bring to him your pain. Bring to him your worry. Bring to him your ugly. Like you don't even want to say it. Here's some of mine. God, I am so easily distracted into thinking that I can come and go as I please into your presence. 
that I've become complacent and in various ways lukewarm off of the platform and the stage. So God, would you not let me in this upcoming year misprioritize my need of you on a daily basis? God, would you not let me in prosperity wander and think that it's the things that you've allowed me to have that can satisfy me? God, would you deliver me from possessions possessing me this year so that I can steward my life in the gifts that you've given me as worship to you? God, help me to be the kind of husband that loves my wife well. Come on, you talk to God. I'm talking to God. You talk to God. Help me to serve her well pursue her well. God, help me to have a mimicable relationship that my kids can see and know what it looks like to be a person after the heart of God. Come on. You pray. Pray for yourself here. Forgive them. receive, how many forgive myself how many not to waste time okay, now as you're, you're praying for yourself I want you to transition and I want to invite you to pray for your neighbor if you're married your closest neighbor is your spouse that's a good starting spot you and your spouse have kids, that's another good start spot for your neighbor. You have literal neighbors that live near you, you should pray for them. You have people you work with, they're your neighbors, you should pray for them. You've got people that have hurt you and they're your enemies, they're your neighbors, you can pray for them. Let's pray for your neighbor. Help us to forgive what in our minds is unforgivable. Help us to entrust our pain to your cross so that we can no longer be marked by what has been done to us by others' sin. Give us an affection and a love for our neighbor that's derived in our love of you. Mark 10 45 for the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many God may we be about that mission this year may we not look for places where we can be served where people can give to us but God may we go out into this world knowing that from you we have everything that we need and we now have the ability to give because you have given to us we now have something to give to our neighbors turn us into a giving kind of people salt of the earth kind of people uh, as much as we ask for you to bless us God would you help us in that blessing to be a blessing to our neighbor and now would you pray for your church if you're a guest you pray for the church that you belong to 
If you don't have a church home, you pray about the church home that God would give to you. If you call this church your home, would you pray for your church? As we embark on a new year and another year of ministry. God, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. We say that tongue-in-cheek and often have little to motivation to step in and take that mandate seriously. But God, we thank you for the community, the gathering that you call your own, your church. We thank you for the communion that we share around your table. That our foundation is not our ethnicity, our economic ability, our status, our achievements, or our failures. But God, our, our unity is derived in a need that we have found satisfied fully in the cross, in the burial, in the resurrection of a Savior named Jesus that has given his life up so that we now can become, though we weren't a people, a people for your glory, a people for your possession, a people for you to work in and through a people for your kingdom to come, a people for your will to be done, that it would be a reality here in this area on 101 as it is in heaven. God, we genuinely and humbly desire to be a vessel where your movement, where your revival, where your hope, where your gospel, where your kingdom is seen and experienced. God, would you bring a crowd? But God, in time, would you make the crowd the kind of place where within it, everyone knows there's a group. A group that they know. A group that they call their own. A group that they account for and are accounted by. A group where they're loved and prayed over. A group where they're challenged and spurred. A group that loves you more than they love them. A group that loves you and the church more than they love them, but a group that loves you and loves the church and loves them all at the same time. Would you make the name of Jesus known? Would you make the name of Jesus famous through us? It's in his name I pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, hey, I'm humbled that you took some time to be with us today. As you head out, there is a giving center in the back. We would love for you to be able to worship through giving in that way. There is a group table right out front with people that want to meet you for a group. There's a group of guys with flyers that want to get you to come to a barbecue and cornhole thing so that you can hear me talk more than I should on Friday night. Basically, you can be known, but uh, the step's on you to take it. We love you. We'll see you soon. Take care.